1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has
0: experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system Or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple the guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
1: Hi, everyone.
2: This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. This is the second of a pair of interviews on alternative medicine. So be sure to check out my previous interview with Susan Califf on her book, Nature's Path, if you like what you hear. A while back, I spoke with Colleen Durkacz, Associate Professor of Rhetoric in the Department of English at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, about her new book, Bounding Biomedicine, Evidence and Rhetoric in the New Science of Alternative Medicine, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Central to Dirk book is a rhetorical analysis of how evidence is invoked to determine the boundaries of biomedicine in both public and expert contexts. The book is an in-depth analysis of medical communication, considering issues of the Journal of the American Medical Association, alongside Newsweek and discourse-based interviews with medical professionals. Her rhetorical-cultural approach allows us to see speech and writing as constitutive of medicine's possibilities of intervention insofar as they frame perceptions and decisions by patients, doctors, and the whole range of medical professionals that make up the industry. Enjoy. Colleen, welcome to New Books in Medicine.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: So we like to start off by having uh, our authors chart the trajectory of their own careers for us, you know, what PhD program, what sort of mentorship, what kind of approaches really inspired you and how did you come to the work at hand?
3: Okay. um I think I came to it from a variety of different um, perspectives that all kind of coalesced. Um, so I did my PhD at UBC, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and I actually started my education there uh, in my undergrad. Uh, but just to go back a little bit further... Um, When I, before I started university, I was a bit of a wild one. And so (laughs) I um, wasn't that interested in school and didn't really know um, that I would ever go to university, actually. And so um, I, kind of wandered through. Once I did decide to go, I wandered through different programs. I started in philosophy, actually. really, I wanted to become a philosopher and uh, literary studies I kind of fell into. Um, by around the second year of my degree, I got really worried about applicability. I was like, you know, I sit around reading books all the time and what will I ever do? So suddenly I decided that I wanted to go to med school or become a chiropractor or do something kind of hands-on healthcare. Um, that was short-lived uh, mm-hmm. because I really, uh, I'm really interested in language and I'm really interested in how how people interact socially. And um, so really everything kind of came together. I finally actually decided that I was going to be a Shakespearean. And in my fourth year of my undergrad, I was accepted to a graduate school in Canada that had a really uh, well-known faculty um, complement of Renaissance studies. And it was in my fourth year, I was taking my like bogus literary theory language credit that I didn't really want to take Uh, and I signed up for a course in rhetoric and I had no idea what it meant um, but I thought okay I have to get over this credit so I'll just do it and it was a full year course and it changed everything actually it was um, so rhetoric is a term that um, as an academic discipline and as a term in everyday use is not something that people are always that familiar with so um, rhetoric as Aristotle defines it is the art of persuasion and the study of that art um, we can think of rhetoric more broadly as all of the ways in which we act on each other by influence through methods, both conscious and unconscious. Um, so how do we persuade each other and ourselves about what we believe, about what we know, how to make decisions, how to choose one candidate or one product over another? Um, and this, course, really turned the lights on for me in a way that nothing else had. Um, and the person who taught it um, became my doctoral supervisor in the end. Um, and so... She had a very particular focus um, on rhetoric of health and medicine. And this really um, it changed everything because I realized I could unite all of my interests, my kind of latent desire to go into med school or to become a chiropractor or some kind of healthcare provider, with my interest in really, really close, detailed, rigorous textual analysis and linguistic analysis. Um, so at that point, it was, I was already registered in my graduate program, so I went off and you know did a bunch of courses in, uh, in Renaissance literature and drama, um, but really just began to kind of um, become obsessed with these questions that I had you know explored in a very tentative way. So I immediately applied for uh, doctoral school with uh, Judy Siegel, who um, was my supervisor and now um, is a close colleague of mine, and so. That was a trajectory to grad school. And then once I was there, it was um, my my degree was all in language theory um, and science and technology studies. So I kind of put together a program because there hadn't been somebody like me in my PhD program before. Um, The university I went to has a science and technology studies PhD program now, but they didn't then. So I kind of put together a program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was kind of my educational background. That led to the questions I'm exploring. There were a couple of personal things as well that led me to the particular kinds of questions I ask. Um, And so without getting into specific details, um, I had something when I was a teenager that I had an experience that really sat with me um, and really provoked a set of questions that sat dormant for a long time until I realized that there were actually ways I could answer those questions. And so what happened was I had, I had a set of symptoms that just weren't very explainable. Um, And I saw my family doctor and she was a a very easygoing, very friendly, affable person. Um, You know, when I would go see her, it was always funny, you'd laugh. Um, And so when I described my symptoms to her, she got very worried. She had a very serious expression. She was thinking through possibilities of what it might be. And so she said, well, you know, it could be something like MS. There's a few other things it could be, I would want to do a spinal tap And of course, you know, I was a teenager. I was terrified of the things she Mm -hmm. was saying, but I also in the back of my head thought um, that my grandpa had had a suggestion before I saw my doctor and he suggested I see a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned this to her. I was 17. I didn't know anything about, you know, tensions among different healthcare providers. I knew that the chiropractor had the word doctor before her name. I don't remember her name, but it was like Dr. So-and-so. And so to me, there was no distinction. But what was really interesting in that moment was how my doctor changed, just for a moment. And it, was, it wasn't that she got mad at me or you know, said anything like, oh, don't be ridiculous. But she, just, she changed in a palpable way. And I, I could feel deeply that I had gone off script in some way. I had said something that changed for just a moment the tenor of that appointment. Um, and she wrote off the suggestion. She said, well, no, you know, I don't think that would help, et cetera. So I went off on my merry way. I went to the chiropractor anyway. And um, the problem resolved itself. It took a few treatments. um, And then the problem resolved itself. And so then I was stuck thinking, okay, well, what happened? How did it work? Why was my doctor bothered by this? So that just kind of sat in the back of my mind. Um, The other thing was um, a close family member of mine had had a couple of problematic diagnoses over the years. Or she had diagnoses that were of so-called contested illnesses so she had non-specific symptoms things like achiness fatigue uh, poor appetite indigestion um, things that there wasn't that there weren't there wasn't really like a, a clear medical explanation um, and so I watched her go through really extensive diagnostic processes and and I watched what that did to her and the search to kind of come up with a label or you know a description or a treatment for her uh, so those two things kind of just, became the bedrock of who I was as, as a young adult. So I started to realize that I could answer these questions or start to at least find ways of exploring them through my research. And so that's the trajectory that led me to the work of the book. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question?
2: Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really fascinating, oh. all those kind of deep academic and personal connections. I guess that's what you look for. That's, that's the best you can get in this uh, in this career, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it felt kind of inevitable to end up doing the project that I did. Um, it was going to be something different at first, but then I found this really cool artifact. Um, and that was the special issues of the journals of the American Medical Association um, and the Associated Archive specialty journals. And so I found them quite by accident. Um, so they were, they were produced in 1998. And so it was the Journal of the American Medical Association's flagship journal JAMA. Uh, and then at the time they were, I think nine associated journals, so as Archives of Family Medicine, Archives of Otolaryngology, Archives of Psychiatry, um, etc. And so they produced this set of coordinated special issues or theme issues all at the same time. And that's that's where I started to become interested in this as I, I became interested in it as a rhetorical object, as a cultural object, as something that circulated in time and space uh, mm-hmm. with you know, under a set of constraints. And I was interested to see what that object did in the world. What kind of social action did it perform for the medical community, for communities beyond what kind of impact did it have?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. And also, even before going into the material that you discuss in the book really nicely. um, So I spoke uh, in my most recent interview with Susan Califf, uh, who's written a history of naturopathy, naturopathy, whatever you uh, (laughs) choose to pronounce the vowel shift in the middle there. Um, And so her practice is a very specific uh, trajectory coming out of 19th century, um, basically German medicine being transmuted or transposed for uh, an American context. And so I was wondering if you could give for our listeners a sense of what uh, the specific practices or professional identity that you uh, explore in the book is? Because you call it uh, complementary alternative medicine. And what what's the impact that a bit for us, I guess?
3: The term?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, well, the, ter- the term itself is, um, I mean, it's quite a vexed term in a lot of ways. So I use the term complementary and alternative medicine or CAM simply because it's the term that's most commonly in use. Um, I, I don't... I should say at the outset, I don't have a dog in this fight. Um, As I said earlier, I had this encounter with chiropractic, um, but it was just an encounter, and I really just became interested in the questions behind it. So the term complementary and alternative medicine is um, kind of an umbrella term for a whole bunch of really different practices that kind of get lumped in together, Um, so something like naturopathy, which is how I've always said it, but I could be wrong. Um, Homeopathy, traditional Chinese medicine, massage therapy sometimes gets lumped in, sometimes doesn't, Uh, spirituality, um, all the way through to reflexology, live blood analysis, a whole range of practices. Um, What's really key about the use of the term is that most, I don't want to say most, but many practitioners of individual Alternative modalities actually don't subscribe to that term, complementary and alternative medicine, because um, it just—it's usually a term that's used kind of as a catch-all to describe anything that doesn't really fit in mainstream biomedicine. Um, and the reason why I, I included that disclaimer of you know I don't have a dog in this fight is because um, I'm actually not in the book and in life in some ways, I'm not that interested in alternative medicine at all or complementary and alternative medicine. I'm really interested in the questions that it poses for mainstream medicine and for people making decisions about their health and healthcare. So I don't come to this research as an advocate at all, and I don't come to it as a skeptic or um, a debunker either. I think it poses really interesting questions. in the book, I talk about the term complementary and alternative medicine and some of its rhetorical effects. So I'm not sure if we could discuss that now or later, um, mm-hmm. but even the oh, term absolutely. itself. Yeah. So the term itself is is contentious because um, rhetorically, so if we think of what kinds of effects does this word have when it's used in circulations, one of the things it's really good at is at minimizing the significance of the individual practices that the term captures. Um, and it becomes what um, uh, Jeffrey Bowker and Susan Lee Starr have called in various of their publications a, a garbage term or a wastebasket term. It becomes, in their words, a residual category. And so what they've done in their various publications is look at how, how does categorization affect The way people, um, you know, live their lives, organize information, etc., and one of the things that they found was things that don't fit into a category easily are much easier to dismiss. So, you know, if you have like multiple choice, you know, A, B, C, and then D is none of the above, it takes any other option, throws it together in a catch-all term, and so that phrase, complementary and alternative medicine, can take practices that have some legitimacy or some evidence and cast them alongside practices that are just, you know, totally made up. I don't want to name a practice, but you know, you could think, you could think of any practice. You can
2: name you one want. that no longer exists, like, uh, like Orgon theory and Wilhelm Reich or something.
3: Okay. Yes. Let's do that. Right. And so what it does is it, it, it lumps things that may actually have some kind of effect or benefit or, and I'm not saying that the benefit is necessary necessarily physiological. It could be psychological, Um, but it lumps them all together. It makes it much easier to write them off. So the term itself is fairly problematic. uh, The term complementary and alternative medicine. It's also handy though. And so um, in the book, um, what I use the term for there is to talk mostly about mainstream, fairly mainstream practices, so acupuncture, chiropractic, traditional Chinese medicine, and dietary supplements or herbal medicines. Those are kind of the big ones I'm talking about. They have the much highest levels of use, um, and they have more evidence um, or a stronger evidence base, whether for or against. But there's more research on them. So those are the the practices that I focus on in the book in particular. Mm-hmm.
2: Great. And so you were elaborating a bit on this when describing uh, your kind of progression into the field of rhetoric and what that offers. But I just wanted to sort of uh, expound on before we get into the content of the book. Uh, so what do you think that the study of rhetoric uniquely offers to the study of biomedicine in society, as opposed to, say, a more ethnographic approach, which mm-hmm. you, know, you do in part, um, or kind of materialist mm-hmm. history? What is uh, looking at the you know, kind of arguments made public and circulating, what does that offer over these approaches that might be, say, like more local, right, or more specific to one of these unique practices?
3: Um, Well, one of the perspectives or one of the benefits of rhetorical research is it looks at the influence of language on decision-making, for example, um, or, you know, the way we view the world. So um, it becomes kind of a... Language works as a lens through which we see the world. And so if you really break that down, you can understand something of the terms in which we talk about health. So, for example, um, just a really... Uh, kind of basic, you know, rhetoric one-on-one example for, for um, health and medicine is looking at the use of metaphor in health. And so we think about, um, we seldom realize how much we use metaphor um, in healthcare context. But for instance, we, when we talk about fighting cancer, we're losing a battle with cancer. What we're doing is we're understanding um, a state of health, um, a disease like cancer, and the experience of living with that disease as a kind of form of hand-to-hand combat in which there's winners or losers, right? Um, And that doesn't fully capture what cancer is or what it's like to experience cancer. Um, The way metaphor works, it it works cognitively, it works rhetorically um, to describe something in terms of something else. And so this is actually, my discussion of metaphor is actually a good metaphor for thinking about rhetoric generally, um, Mm -hmm. which is that... um, We often don't notice when we're speaking in terms of metaphor. Um, We often think of it as, uh, you know, a metaphor is is a comparison without using like or as, right? That's sort of the standard description. We think of metaphor as being kind of floral, like it's it's an ornament to language to embellish things. Uh, But uh, 20th century rhetorician Kenneth Burke once described metaphor as bringing out the thisness of a that and the thatness of a this right? So you're actually understanding something in terms of something else. So if you want to look at cancer, for example, when we say so-and-so, you know, she lost her battle with cancer um, or he fought valiantly, what we're doing is we're thinking of cancer in very specific terms that block out other ways of thinking about cancer, right? Um, So once we think of winning or losing, well, what happens to somebody who um, gets sick and dies, right? Did they not fight enough? did they not love their family enough? Right. So, so that's um, one thing that a rhetorical approach uh, to health and medical topics can do is, is show how language plays a role in the ways in which we understand what health is, how we research um, health, how we deliver healthcare and how people make decisions in their everyday lives. There's another way that you can also um, think about the benefit of a rhetorical approach. Um, And this I'm, totally cribbing from my former advisor, Judy Siegel, who talked about how rhetoric is really good at asking questions that are conceptually prior to the questions that other health researchers might ask. So for example, instead of asking, how do we make plastic surgery safer? Um, A rhetorician of health and medicine might ask, how do people come to be persuaded to see themselves as in need of surgery in the first place. So what are the social mechanisms in place? Uh, What are the belief systems in place Um, and the values that cause people to think that they do need plastic surgery? So that's kind of the classic example. And so in my case, one of the prior questions I ask um, in my research is, if there's this whole kind of buffet array of health practices people can consume out there, We could ask, and we should ask, you know, which of those buffet items are safe and effective, and which ones aren't. Of course, we should ask that. Um, But we also might want to ask, why is there so much stuff in the first place? Why do we need so much healthcare? Why do we need to take so many pills? Um, And for me, it doesn't really matter if the pills contain pharmaceuticals or if they contain dietary supplements, you know, or herbs. Doesn't matter to me. We're taking a lot of stuff, and so what I aim in my research to do is try to understand some of the reasons why we are such high consumers of healthcare. Mm. So there's kind of two ways you can look at it.
2: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And this, uh, you know, the notion of how what makes a this of this and a that of that, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really kind of does shade into a concept known very well by STS scholars, uh, that of boundary work, right? Yes. How different uh, groups of disciplinary actors will basically come to, uh, you know, an object, a thing with their different sets of concepts and definitions and can agree on a negotiation. But what do you mean exactly when you say that you employ a rhetorical cultural approach and what does that kind of offer within the field of rhetoric studies?
3: Okay, so by rhetorical cultural approach, um, I'm, I'm riffing on what several of my colleagues um, have described as a reproach that, an approach that combines rhetorical criticism theory and analysis, and I can get to that in a moment, with a kind of more cultural studies approach. So not just looking at text, but how do they circulate in culture? Um, and so... By rhetorical analysis and criticism, what I'm referring to there really is the, you know, 2,500 or more year old tradition uh, emerging out of, you know, the early days of democracy um, in ancient Greece and Rome. Um, so figures like Plato, Aristotle, um, Cicero, uh, right up to the 21st century. uh Rhetoric, the definitions of rhetoric have changed over time, but they're all really interested in, in, again, how do we come to know what we know? How do we believe what we believe? How do we move people? How do we act on each other and ourselves by influence? And so what a rhetorical approach does is it tracks the kind of persuasive element in everyday life. So, so in health and medical context, so, um, the thing about science is we, we don't really think of science as a rhetorical enterprise generally right we tend to think of science as empirical it's scientific it's based on observation um if anyone has ever read a scientific article you know how unsexy it is right it's (laughs) it's unadorned it seems very you know like a faithful reporting of true facts and events um but you know from the past 30 or so years of research and rhetoric of science we know that science is shot through with persuasive influence and so rhetorical scholars have found for example um how scientific articles, well, the genre of the scientific article, for example, has a very standard format with the the IMRAD format, right, with the introductions, methods, results, and discussion format. And what scholars, earlier scholars um, than me, have been able to show is that that format itself is persuasive. Uh, it suggests that science operates in a very particular, regimented way that we know from ethnographic research, from empirical observation, from rhetorical linguistic analysis is not really how science works. So the way that science goes from, you know, lab notes to a published article, it's much messier than the finished product would have us believe, right? And so in rhetoric of health and medicine, we kind of build on that foundation um, and look at, for example, how does the evidence say an article published in a medical journal, how does that go from being published in a medical journal toward informing patient care, right? How do doctors interpret these studies? Um, How do they weigh these studies vis-a-vis their personal experience, their hunches, everything they know about the patient? How does that then get employed? Um, Or how do patients use that to make decisions, you know, about their own health or their family member's health, right? So all of these are um, areas where persuasion is active and alive, but we tend not to think of how persuasion functions in these contexts. Mm -hmm.
2: And a good example of one of these contexts is actually shifting to the end of your book when you uh, are looking downstream and how some of this rhetoric of uh the medical establishment trying to you know mitigate what parts of uh CAM to take up or you know what needs to be legitimized and you analyze, anyway you analyze this really interesting issue of Newsweek uh and I was wondering if we yeah. could actually start there and see how it is that um a popular publication like Newsweek presents these kinds of arguments and then even maybe transitioning to how is this presentation different from what you trace in uh Jama and archive studies okay. throughout the book
3: that's interesting because I have to go back and I have to take back something I said earlier um, because I only gave you part of the story. I didn't give you the full story, <laughs> and the full story is that issue of Newsweek is how I came across the theme issues of JAMA. So mm-hmm. it's not like I was like in the stacks of the library and just found this journal. It was um, <laughs> I was at the checkout stand buying groceries near my house uh, in 2001 or two or whenever that issue came out. And I saw the the cover said the new science of alternative medicine, and it had this this picture of this woman. Interestingly, you know, a white kind of wealthy looking beautiful woman, um, and she is she's kind of looking upward, and there is an acupuncture needles sticking out of her forehead, and so. You know that that contrast was really interesting to me, and it was right you know in the grocery store checkout line and and it made this real argument, even visually, this new science of alternative medicine is not like anything we 've known before because it's affluent it's middle class it's not traditional Chinese practice right now it 's blown into the mainstream that 's what this this cover um, seemed to be arguing um, and so I take that up in the last chapter of the book to to look at how. How large scale studies of alternative medicine are reported to the media. Um, And interesting things happen because science kind of plays a dual role um, in popular reporting about scientific studies of of alternative medicine. Because one of the reasons why people end up seeking alternative medicine or complementary and alternative medicine is because they don't totally trust science, right? They're not fully invested in a scientific model. So that's part of it. Um, And so science is portrayed in a really interesting way there because science itself is sort of described as a really positive thing. Um, The terms that are used are are quite positive, but scientists are figured as kind of racing to catch up to the rest of society because people are so interested in in (laughs) acupuncture and um, herbal medicine and things like that, that it's in the magazine, it medical researchers and practitioners are, are portrayed as being caught unawares and are just trying to run to fi- figure out. I think the word racing is used uh, in that issue. I don't know, 50 times or something. Um, I just imagine all these guys in these lab coats running around. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that I found um, really uh, prominent in the issues, uh, sorry, in the Newsweek issue is how institutional Research struggles are paired with these kind of really individualist stories of people who have sought alternative remedies because they weren't getting what they needed from mainstream medicine.
2: It's it's kind of like you it, you do portray it as medicine, the medical establishment catching up with consumers, right? Mm-hmm. And it sort of poses the medical establishment as. A more directly consumer-driven thing, as yeah. opposed to being driven by disciplines. So it's interesting because the question of disciplinarity is important only insofar as uh, their kind of services or modalities of care they're not currently offered by mainstream medicine, rather than challenges to some you know existing legitimizing um, you know epistemology.
3: Yeah, I think I think one thing that's so interesting about this is how um, the magazine. Recognizes and appreciates that the decisions that people make about their health and healthcare is determined not only by science. Um, And that's one of the things that gets me so frustrated when people wave the flag of science and say, but this isn't science. We shouldn't be doing these studies. People shouldn't be choosing these practices. Um, And I find this so frustrating because for any individual person, whether or not something is scientific is only a small factor in um, how they decide. um, Whether or not you know, a friend of theirs had good success with the treatment is important. Whether or not they find that uh, the practitioner, if they're seeking a practitioner, is attentive to, um, you know, all aspects of their lives rather than just, you know, walking in and saying, hi, what's wrong with you and, you know, running a test and that's the end of it. Um, And so there was a really interesting tension in the issue of Newsweek between Reporting again in this is this large institutional struggle with um, you know one woman who who was in a trial for a treatment for hot flashes and found that the product she was taking worked and so um, there often isn't room in sort of big institutional narratives for uh, individual suffering
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely, and that kind of that's a good way of segueing into the beginning of the book where. What you're concerned with are you know the categories that a lot of these medical researchers bring with them and how they frame their studies. But then you also even go through and acknowledge how the patient does emerge in these uh, these discussions, discussions uh, th- in journal articles and otherwise. So in the first chapter, you talk about uh, evidence and how evidence is used to construct boundaries between you know legitimate and non legitimate disciplines, or even you know between <laughs> different uh, different disciplines. You know what distinguishes uh, specific maybe like Western, Westernized acupuncture from traditional Chinese medicine, what kinds of epistemologies and assumptions. So I was wondering, um, you know, you have this really uh, nice discussion of how uh, evidence becomes a means of exclusion of these different kinds of disciplines for the mainstream of medicine. I'm wondering if you could unpack what you mean by that evidence as exclusion. Or notion of evidence as exclusion. Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. That's the thing I really became obsessed with. So uh, originally, when I was first starting work on this project, it was really going to be just about, you know, funding and policy decisions about which practices to – which alternative practices to fund, which ones to provide licensing for, et cetera, and which ones not to – But what I kept noticing again and again and again was this formulation about evidence. Um, And so I talk in the book several times about about this kind of standard phrase that gets used, which is there is no alternative medicine. There is only safe, effective medicine that has been proven to work and then stuff that isn't medicine because it's not proven to work. Um, And so I really became interested in how this idea of evidence becomes mobilized in areas of medical and scientific controversy, because when we're... You know, not talking about controversy when we're sort of, you know, comfortably within the boundaries of science, you know, what would properly be called science. Scientists and medical researchers are very comfortable to talk about shortcomings of research practices, of publication, um, uh, publication, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, problems with publication journals, right? Like there, you know, certain kind of published publication biases like favoring positive results and, you know, negative studies tend not to get published, those kinds of things. Um, so scientists and, and medical researchers are very comfortable to talk about limitations on trial design. Um, but once we get to the edges of what's considered accepted, that's where evidence gets mobilized in these really problematic and interesting ways. And so again and again, I kept seeing, but there's no evidence that you know, X practice works or that Y practice even could work. So the idea of evidence itself, itself started to seem really elastic to me. It seemed to actually serve a really argumentative aim depending on the tenor of the discussion and whether it was a debate or not. Um, and so, for example, um, I, when I was working on the book, I conducted a series of discourse-based interviews and discourse-based interviews are interviews that focus around either the production or the reception of a text. So it's a little bit more focused than, you know, kind of a regular qualitative interview. And so um, I in the course of this research, I interviewed two medical researchers. Both of them worked on a consultation service for trial design. So they're really specialists in, in biomedical research methodologies. Um, and I met with them, and I had them read Uh, some sections from the method section and the um, results section of two trials of acupuncture. I didn't tell them that they were from um, a set of theme issues about alternative medicine. So all they knew was that they were published in JAMA um, and that they were about acupuncture. And I had them read them carefully, sort of line by line, uh, and just comment on anything that they found unusual. What was really interesting to me was uh, in The methods section of one of the trials, it was a trial of a practice practice known as moxibustion. And moxibustion is, you take like a kind of a large cigar-shaped roll of um, different leaves. Um, In this case, I think it was Artemisia vulgaris. Um, And you... Burn these um, cigar-shaped rolls on acupoints, right? So a traditional acupuncture point. Um, and this study was a study for reversal of breech pregnancies. So head first or feet first pregnancies, right? Uh, and so it was a really interesting study because um, again, so th- there was it was about the burning of this moxa roll on, it was on the outside um, pinky toe, like outside of the fingernail on the pinky toe on the right side. And, The pregnant women, I think it was for two weeks or so, every day their partner would hold this this burning MOXA roll on the toe. And the study had a quite strongly positive result, which is a bit baffling, right? Um, And so these researchers, they read through, they didn't know the result yet. So they just read through the methods and they thought it sounded really reasonable. Uh, They thought it was well designed and well controlled. But when they got to the results section and that they found out that this study result was positive they ended up going back. One of them in particular went back and reread the method section again, just to see he, that he, he must've gotten something wrong because there's no way that this study could possibly have been positive. Um, and I found that really interesting because um, before he knew about the results, he was totally fine with the results. He said, yeah, the sounded, you know, it's not perfect, but it sounds like acceptable scientific practice. Uh, but then when he found out about the results, suddenly that evidence became questionable and, mm-hmm. um, that, that gave me some pause to think about the relationship between what the evidence is of or what the evidence shows and how we understand the, or how we view the validity of the evidence itself, right? Um, mm-hmm. I can give you a more straightforward example, actually. It's it's more recent than the book, but um, it's kind of interesting. So uh, there was um, about a year ago, the Dean of the Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, I don't actually know her myself, um, but her name is Heather Boone, and she um, was doing a trial of homeopathy for ADHD in kids for the treatment of ADHD in kids, um, and there was a really interesting. There, there was a a series of kind of debates happening in popular media in Canada about this research. Um, her argument was, well, a lot of families report success with homeopaths, uh, and again, homeopaths for for people not familiar with with the practice is based on uh, kind of a pre scientific idea, I guess about that like cures like. So if you have fever, for example, you could treat it with um, something that would cause fever in a well person. And so what you would do is you would take that substance and then you would dilute it infinitesimally uh, until arguably um, there are no molecules of the original substance even left, right? So homeopathy is a kind of a dubious practice. Um, That's one of the alternative practices I'm probably most willing to say, yeah, like, you know, there's no way. Um, except for there are aspects of care that may have an effect. And that's what the study was trying to show. So it was a study to Uh look at um, whether or not homeopathy was effective in treating ADHD in children. And there was a whole series of of debates um, being led, particularly by one researcher at McGill University who said these studies should not even be done, right? There should be no studies at all of these practices. There's no possible way they could work. This is a waste of time. And he organized an open letter signed globally by prominent researchers um, the researcher conducting the study shot back and said um, that this is a complex intervention. It involves more than just taking a remedy, but it involves um, aspects of care. It it involves interpersonal dynamics. We don't know why people report that they have um, positive outcomes when they seek homeopathy, but we need to find out. And so the argument there that we need more evidence, I think is actually fairly sound. But as soon as you talk about producing a trial of of a practice that's you know way on the fringes then that becomes really problematic reputationally in terms of funding um you know in all kinds of different ways and so their evidence becomes um it really becomes a touchstone for a much bigger set of issues about what can and can't be done in science
2: Hmm. (laughs) that's really interesting and so that even uh leads us nicely into your second chapter which um, to my recollection, is about actually the kind of performance of the profession through the writing itself, or as you described rhetorically, the epideictics of that. And so one of the interesting things you discussed a bit in the chapter is how uh, for a lot of these practitioners involved in medical research on alternative medicine, they kind of exist in something of a dual role. Some, like uh, I think you described uh, Ted Capchuk at Harvard, they are both you know, medical researchers and, you know, alternative practitioners. So what I'm interested is, you know, to what extent uh, is that duality negotiated and to what extent is it more about uh, incorporation?
3: That's interesting. That's, um, I talk about this in the book. um, And I think about it a lot actually, because I'm an outsider as well, studying medicine, right. As a non-medical researcher. Um, In the theme issues I examine. There are very few alternative practitioners actually represented in the publishing authors. Um, I don't know if that was a factor of submission to the journals or if it was a factor of, you know, editorial selection. Um, I tried actually to get information from the American Medical Association about the kinds of submissions they received. and, And I wanted to gain insight into the peer review process. But uh, I, I tried several different ways and had no way to get in to discuss this. So I don't really know what kinds of decisions were being made behind the scenes. Um, so so that question there, it, it's interesting because, there, again, there's not a lot of alternative practitioners represented. Ted Kapchak is one mm. interesting exception. Um, his career uh, is absolutely fascinating for me. He has a, I think it's a DOM or ODM degree. It's, it's a doctor of oriental medicine um, I recognize that the term Oriental is problematic, but that is the degree of the or the name of the degree. Um, and so he was a practitioner, but now um, he directs a research center at Harvard that has nothing really to do with alternative medicine at all. He's studying placebo effects now, and so he's had this really fascinating uh, trajectory. Um, I think one of the issues about kind of occupying a dual role of being a practitioner as well as doing the research could be perceived uh, as kind of a conflict of interest. Um, And I say perceived because I don't know that really is a conflict of interest. Medical researchers are often practitioners as well, right? So, um, but um, it could be inferred that uh, someone who has, you know, say acupuncture credentials and then does an acupuncture study could be perceived as being an advocate of that practice um, rather than being kind of an, you know, disinterested observer trying to determine whether or not something works. So that's something, uh, again, you don't really see the reverse. You don't really see... um, Mainstream medical researchers being derided for being practitioners, but there is a sense among, um, or there there seems to be a sense that uh, practitioners would advocate for their own practices rather than you know observe them disinterestedly, which is you know again the, that's something. Homeopathy case I just talked about at the University of Toronto because the researcher is not a homeopath at all, um, and so mm-hmm. I would think that that study would have kind of a higher perceived level of. Scientific legitimacy, but it doesn't just simply because of the topic, and that's something that that recurs again and again that I examine in the book, the journals, is that these studies shouldn't be done at all just because the topics are so outlandish for a mainstream medical journal.
2: And how did the how did the editors of the journalists use study? Did they you know, how did they celebrate uh, what the meaning of these uh, issues was for, you know, for the field itself? Like, what did they what did they think of it as? Is it some kind of, you know, deliberate intervention? Is it an inevitable progression of these practices toward some kind of gold standard of biomedicine? Like, what are they seen as?
3: That's a good question. I don't. I mean, it's hard to know for sure how they saw it. They certainly memorialized it in a few different ways. Um, one thing that um, the the editor, one of the editors um, did was produce a collected volume of many of the articles that were published in the original journal. So it was, I think, three years later, I think it was around 2001, they published, it's it's a really substantial book. Like, it's heavy. I could weigh things down with it. It's really big. Uh, and it's called... Um, you know, something like alternative medicine, a scientific, as- an objective assessment, I think it's called. Uh, and this was a moment and there was a forward written by the president or the then president of the American Medical Association saying what an important, significant moment this was for the medical profession. Um, I talk in the book about this, this rhetorical moment. I call it a rhetorical moment um, because it was really an opportunity for the profession's own self-fashioning. It was an opportunity for Mm -hmm. members of the professional, um, members of a professional medical organization, the AMA, um, to really think about, you know, who belongs in this community, who doesn't, what practices belong, what practices don't. There was a lot of debate about it. And so when the editors initially issued the call for papers in 1997, it was out of a kind of a deliberative process that had occurred over the previous years um, as the membership and the editorial staff determined um, what topics to cover in the next uh, theme issue. So. Uh, the Journals of the American Medical Association published theme issues every year, coordinated theme issues. So this wasn't you know unusual in that regard. they're published every year. Um, but this one was unique um, in the sense that it really provided space at least ostensibly to outsiders to publish within the journal. Um, and the call for papers welcomed articles from anybody. Who had conducted um, studies of a whole range of practices, and at the time they said it was just practices that were not normally delivered in U.S. hospitals or taught in U.S. um, medical schools. Uh, So it was pretty, you know, casting a pretty wide net. Uh, It's interesting to see kind of the, the authors that that did appear in the published version. Again, I don't know who submitted, but from what we can see, it's fairly mainstream. Uh, I think there's, you know, a couple people with acupuncture credentials, a couple people with chiropractic credentials, but for the most part, it was, is mainstream MDs and PhDs. What was quite interesting, uh, in both the call for papers and in the editorial that accomplished uh, the, sorry, that accompanied the, the JAMA issue was the editors described this as a kind of a landmark moment in medicine. Um, in some ways, but they also said, you know, that there isn't any alternative medicine. There's only medicine that's proven safe and effective. Um, And so it was interesting because they were both um, expanding the scope of medicine to include other health practices, um, not necessarily other practitioners, but other practices. While at the same time, kind of firming up that boundary um, to say that there is only Mm -hmm. science Um, and so, But they did see it as a really big moment. One thing that was interesting, though, is the candor, um, both in, in the main editorial and in other editorial matters in the theme issues, as well as the call for papers, is they really did reckon with the fact that this research and this kind of discursive activity in the journals was prompted by the public, and that was, I think, slightly unusual um, mm-hmm. because it was really being driven by what people were already doing rather than uh, medical researchers and practitioners sort of identifying, you know, areas to explore. It was more like, holy crap, massive numbers of people are seeking these practitioners and we know nothing about them. We know nothing about the practices and we've got a race to catch up. So that part was actually quite interesting. <laughs> the kind of the causality yeah. was, was reversed in in a, in a way that um, whether it, the objective was about mainstreaming, Cam, I don't think so. Um, It didn't seem to me to be, uh, it didn't seem imperial as much as it seemed kind of, I think protectionist is too strong a word, but it seemed to be about kind of bolstering the the scope of the mainstream medical profession um, and kind of inadvertently. To maintain its its position kind of at the top of the healthcare hierarchy. Um, I don't think mm. any individual health, any individual researcher, you know, sought out to like, hey, you know, this is how we're going to stay on the top of the heap. Uh, but I think collectively, that's that was sort of an objective.
2: Yeah, really interesting. And so I love chapter three, because uh, it's sort of about this very interesting meeting up of, you know, control trial standards, mm. and you know, these sorts of practices that are meant to be almost deliberately not non-standard, right? There are guidelines mm-hmm. for practitioners, but they're almost, as you say, they're about the interaction effects. It's not about the neutral application of some kind of biomedical agent to the body of the patient subject or the non-application in the case of uh, controls. So what I'm wondering is that you, you have a really great description of, of acupuncture, and I'm wondering how did the attempt to fit acupunctural practice into a randomized control trial, how did that, distort what in effect they were really trying to capture?
3: Well, I think, I think one of the things I would say there is, is you, what they wanted to capture would really depend on who you're asking, right? Uh, because mm. one of the central focuses in debates about whether or not a practice like acupuncture works is what is its mechanism of action, right? Like how does it work it, uh, physiologically for the average patient, for people in the world? They often don't care how it happens, right? They care that they feel better, and that's really the only thing. Um, the traditional Chinese medical practitioners I interviewed were also not that fussed about how it worked, and I can come back to that in a moment. But depending on who I spoke to or what I read, um, it really varied that that question of whether and how it works. Um, and so, um, and so one of the the ways that traditional Chinese medicine or TCM acupuncture, um, is, it is incompatible with kind of a mainstream biomedical randomized control trial format is that it's premised on a theory of energy flow through channels, um, for which there is no actual, you know, known physiological, um, structure, right? So, so, Acupuncture is premised on the idea of the flow of chi or energy uh, through these different channels, and so when you stick acupuncture needles in, you're, you're stimulating the flow of chi. Well, there's absolutely no way to explain that in a biomedical framework, right? Uh, even a really generous. Um, attempt to to fit those two perspectives together, they don't really work. So if you want to try to explain a potential effect of acupuncture in a biomedical lexicon, you might talk about, for example, uh, the stimulation of endogenous opioids, right? So you're releasing some kind of internal painkillers in the body that make a person feel better. Um, So you can't really actually put those two perspectives uh, very easily together. So how we define efficacy depends partly on how we understand what that means. Um, To the traditional Chinese practitioners I spoke to who fully believe in the meridian theory of energy flow, they also weren't too bothered by the idea that people would feel better just through psychological effects. Right. And that's something that would be considered unethical in the context of medical research. Um, so that's that's one issue that you come up against. Another issue is how do we measure um, efficacy to begin with? The best way is through some kind of externally uh, verifiable measurements. So something you can measure like on a scan or some kind of, you know, ometer whether it's a thermometer or a glucosometer or a whatever-ometer, something that you can see physically, empirically, um, would be kind of the best scenario. Once you get into patient-reported outcomes, so pain diaries, for example, um, then things get fuzzier because patients in the context of medical research are kind of dubious characters, Right. Um they're they're framed as such in research. Um so patient report is is you know considered a pretty soft endpoint for a study. Um and so studies of um practices like acupuncture though, they tend to be about symptoms that have softened just by their very nature. People tend to seek complementary and alternative medicine primarily for things that are hard to see or hard to measure, things like pain, fatigue, energy, mood, uh, digestive issues, those things you can't really you know, view on a scope, you can't view it on a scan. Um, and so when you don't have some sort of externally verifiable outcome, and you have a set of symptoms that are fuzzy to begin with, then it can be hard to determine whether or not a practice works. And when a practice is already kind of considered on the fringe, then I think the standards that get invoked are a little bit more stringent than they are in other areas of medicine. And certainly this is something that various of the people I interviewed said.
2: And so in the, you, you kind of bring up the, uh, the problem of the patient As it enters Mm. into it in chapter four, this figures really prominently when you discuss the kind of you really, I kind of see this as, you know, a case of, uh, using one discipline to open up a really large question uh, of the medical establishment. And I think that's how you set up as well. uh, This idea of, you know, actually doing patient centered research and, you know, concerns about, uh, you know, how I think that I'm just going to quote from, uh, I think it's uh, yeah, the very influential article defining evidence-based medicine for the medical establishment. And so uh, the quote goes at the heart of clinical medicine, Is an unresolved conflict between uh, the essentially case-based nature of clinical practice and the mainly population-based nature of the research evidence. So this question comes uh, for practitioners that EBM resolves to, uh, well, the EBM decides to resolve, uh, is how do you negotiate individuals with research populations? But in the making of these research populations, you know, uh, actually getting control patients, somebody who is a practitioner has to, you know, actually provide what would be seen as substandard care or like they had to create control patients. And in a lot of these alternative practices, the, I guess the activity of the practitioner is so much different than giving mm. somebody a pill that's, uh, you know, okay. kind of non working or non working. So how is this negotiated in uh, these different studies?
3: That question, it's, it's so interesting. Um, in reading debates, I, I read you know quite widely across the medical literature from around this period in debates about whether or not scientific research on alternative medicine should even be conducted, and if so, under what terms. Um, and, and something that came up again and again was really the strong sense that patients are... Kind of a pain in the ass in medical research that um, <laughs> that patients kind of get in the way with all of their you know wily and different beliefs and behaviors and um, you know placebo effects um, and and so it started to strike me that the best designed study of CAM would be a study which you would control for patients altogether. Like somehow you'd control them right out of the study. Uh, Because um, again, the conditions for which people seek CAM are typically, you know, fairly nonspecific symptoms. You know, people tend not to, you know, if you have like a gaping wound or like a bone protruding out of your body, um, you tend not to seek a CAM practitioner. Cancer care is, 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 I think it's shifting in some ways. Um, but generally, um, cam use in even something like cancer is, you know, usually it's ancillary to, to um, you know, the biomedical standard of care. And it's usually helping coping with symptoms instead. Um, but, mm-hmm. but more often than not, uh, people seek cam for, again, nonspecific things. And so um, the, studies, um, the studies that I examined, um, I, I looked primarily at chiropractic. I look at acupuncture and chiropractic in that chapter. Um, and... What I found was that the trials would try to, yeah, control patients out of the study. So controlling out of things like um, interpersonal care. So in practices like acupuncture and chiropractic, um, chiropractic in particular, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk with the practitioner. There's a lot of patient education. So often, uh, in many cases, when individuals seek chiropractors, they have an intake consultation that may or may not involve x-rays or other scans but usually does uh, and a, an extensive physical exam with like um, you know charts uh, that the the chiropractor draws like uh, drawings of the skeleton showing like specific kind of top, mm-hmm. you know s- spots that aren't moving correctly there's um, education as well. At the level of showing how joints work and what's not working on the patient's body, um, sometimes they show films. So there's a really kind of intensive kind of integration period, and then even the the clinical encounter itself involves a lot of talk. So while and I've seen chiropractors before, so this was my experience too. Is you know as a chiropractor walking around the table making adjustments to your body they're talking to you about your life. Oh, how's work going? And how was your weekend? And, you know, this kind of, you know, small talk. Um, And what I found um, problematic about the studies I looked at was they tended to evacuate that stuff out of the equation as if it were unimportant. And so rather than design a trial so that one arm maybe would be like, kind of the full package of chiropractic care. So the patient education, the psychosocial kind of interaction part, as well as the the physical adjustment part, and then maybe having one arm doing just the physical adjustment. Uh, this The study that I looked at, one of them in particular, pulled all of that stuff out as if that was just noise that would interview interfere with the so-called real valid results of the study. Um, and so mm-hmm. there seemed to be a real disjuncture there between um, what patients find valuable about the practice, what practitioners find valuable about the practice, and then how that practice is instantiated in a research construct or context, which is different um, and fundamentally altered. Of course, it will be. I mean, it's, you know, a randomized control trial is an artificial environment to begin with. But I think that um, what I found was researchers were not always attentive to these psychosocial or interactive aspects of care that could possibly be what is effective, or one of the things that that patients find effective about that practice. Um, And so the evidence produced by a study like that may not be so sound. And that's, you know, if if debates about alternative practice hinge on this idea of evidence, then we want to make sure the evidence we're producing is really, really good. Um, And when the practice um, in the study doesn't really resemble how it's actually, you know, employed in everyday practice, that's really problematic. Um, One of the studies I look at is is a different acupuncture trial in which the researchers employed what they call the standardized acupuncture regimen. They call it an SIR throughout the article. Um, And they present this regimen as if it were a standard practice of care until late in the article. And in just a tiny part of the article, very understated, they say this practice differs from like everyday acupuncture practice. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because if it differs from everyday practice, then what is the point in studying it at all? No, um, the, the acupuncturists I interviewed for the book, they both said they would never use a treatment like that. Well, if no one will ever use a treatment like that, then what's the evidence worth. Right. (laughs) So, so evidence there. Why are we studying it? (laughs) Right. And sometimes it seems, um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it seems like a study is really undertaken just to prove something doesn't work rather than approaching it with a real question.
2: Excellent. Well, Pauline, I think we're beginning to run out of time, but uh, we like to wrap things up here on the New Books Network by asking authors what they're working on now. Obviously, with the you know <laughs> publication cycles and delays and whatever, what, uh, what we discuss in the interviews isn't always the pressing thing on people's minds. So I'd love to <laughs> hear what you're working on currently.
3: Um, well, it's interesting because what I'm working on comes right out of the book. No one that reads the book will be surprised at what I'm working on next because I really gesture toward it um, at the end. And part of it, I was, ju- you know, I was juggling the two projects at the same time. Partly, really, the, the book delivered me at the doorstep of this new project. And the new project is about the idea of wellness in contemporary Western culture, particularly as it's taken up in uh, discussion about dietary supplements or herbal remedies. Um, really, I'm interested in stuff in pills. Why do we take so many pills? And it's not just pharmaceutical pills, but it's also now so-called natural um, pills. And so, in that project, I'm looking at—I don't have a title for it yet—but um, one of the things I'm thinking about is the pharmaceuticalization of wellness and how the idea of wellness, which we once exam- or sorry, we once imagined as the opposite or even absence of illness, um, and how has it become now? sort of a form of incipient illness or illness in waiting. So wellness is a bodily state that we now have to manage and surveil much in the way that we used to do with symptoms of illness. And so rather than, for example, checking our you know blood glucose levels or blood pressure levels or things like that, now we're monitoring our sleep and our energy and even sex lives and um, trying to optimize um, our states of health. And so I'm looking there at how how much the language of wellness is actually premised on kind of a model of illness instead. And so it's, it's really a natural extension of the previous project.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much. We really look forward to seeing that. And uh, to our listeners, thank you so much. This has been New Books in Medicine.